Hello, everyone. Welcome to Travels with Triggs on WJFF. Due to the pandemic, we're not traveling these days. We're reaching out to friends across the country. And today we'll be talking about Disney and life after Disney with Louis Gravance, author of Service is a Superpower on Travels with Triggs. And we're back on Travels with Triggs talking to Louis Gravance. Say hello to everyone, Louis. Hello, Greg. It's nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you for joining us all the way from Orlando, Florida. Um, so we're going to talk about Disney today, which is, I think, one of the biggest passions in your life. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And you've worked for Disney. You've been uh, involved with Disney pretty much your whole life. Why is that? What, what about Disney drew you to make it such an important part of your life? You know, something that I don't think can be overestimated is, you know, I was the last generation where Walt spoke to me, you know, uh, um, to have been eight years old when Walt Disney died is something that would be very hard to describe to anyone that wasn't there because there has never really been that grandfather figure across all lines globally like that. And so I remember him and his passion and the best part of the, of the show every Sunday night was listening to him at the beginning of the end, especially nights when he was going to talk about Disneyland. And, you know, and, and cause there'd be a twinkle man and he'd show a scale model and kids would levitate. And the next day at school on Monday morning, people would talk about, there's gonna be a pirate ride. And um, so I don't think that can be overestimated uh, how much of an effect that had on me. And even as a kid, it's weird you were able, even though you wouldn't understand animation, there was something intrinsically more classy about their product than say the Hanna-Barbera stuff that you would see that you could tell as a kid, even though you couldn't identify it as good taste, there was, some, there was a richness about the product that you could detect even as a kid. Plus your parents, you hear your parents say things like, yeah, well, you can always count on Disney. Or, you know, we can always, you know, you, so it was, uh, you never heard anyone badmouth Disney. The first time I ever heard anybody badmouth Disney, I might have been in seventh grade, and it was a teacher who was snarky about the building of Walt Disney World and what it was going to do to the environment. And I had just never, it, it had not been in my consciousness that that would be like pissing on Santa Claus. I had not, it was quite shocking to me that someone could hold, you know, <laughs> A negative opinion about Walt Disney. It was offensive. <laughs> I'm, hoping some, I'm hoping some children are listening to get that illusion. Uh, do you think that it was unique to the fact that you grew up in California, or would you say that there were that that feeling permeated the whole United States? I think it permeated the whole United States, but it had to be a little bit more intense since you knew you could get there by car. And what was your first trip to Disneyland like? Okay, well, you know, I tell the story about going, but there's always a piece of the story I never tell because it just sounds too, like, you know, it's too, too violin-y. My mother had been diagnosed with, uh, with terminal cancer. And the reason why we really went as quickly as we did, although there were other factors like me bugging my father's boss about him not taking me and my father's boss... Uh, <laughs> really sort of reading my dad the riot act. I, I go in that in the book. But 
you manipulated the situation to your own advantage? Yeah, well, you know, I, it was a skill, I guess, it came early because um, my father would say, well, we can't go to Disneyland because the boss will give me the time off. And I knew it was shining me on. So when I, my dad worked for the same, a bottling company for years. And so even at seven, I knew the guy that owned the company. So I marched right up to him at a Christmas party and go, hi, um, I don't know if you know, but um, I'm going to be eight this year. And um, I really want to go to Disneyland. And my dad says that the reason that we can't go is because you won't give him the time off to take me. So um, I was just sort of wondering if maybe you'd give my dad some time to take me to Disneyland. And this guy had had a few drinks and threw me in the air and picks me up and giggles and puts me on his knee and calls my dad over and goes, so, okay, so let me get this straight. Uh, your boys here haven't been to Disneyland. And it's all my fault. Is that about it? And my father freaking freaked out. So, so the trip was on, but what was also on the sideline was that my mother was not expected to live for 12 months. And that's the reason why it was we're going in that couple of weeks. Is what, and so that's always... In, in the back of Disney ending, your mother did survive and you were not left a motherless orphan. You know, that's true. But you know, I've seen eight millimeters movies of the, uh, of the, um, of the trip and I'm hyperactive and, and just, my, I just, oh God bless me, just screaming. And yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm just so Twitter painted. And, and, but my mom, a beautiful woman is, I can see how gaunt and ill she is um, going through it. So it's a really, um, so, so, so it's a very interesting memory. And then exactly a month after the trip, Walt Disney died. A month to the day that we went, Walt Disney died. And the principal of my elementary school came to my third grade class to see if I needed to go home. So that's how well known my, uh, my Disney passion was. Well, and uh, unlike some people who are Disney passionate, you made a focus and a goal of actually working for Disney, which came true. You were a cast member at Walt Disney World, correct? At Disneyland first, but I, I really wanted to be an Imagineer and an artist. So I would, you know, then when Enterprises was there and people would answer their mail and I would send them drawings of ride ideas I had. Like I had an idea, which I guess a lot of young gay kids, kids did at my age, of having a Mary Poppins ride where the carousel just sort of lead, the, the horse leads. And I guess Tony Baxter has created a ride like this. And I sent them a ride where you would ride inside of Bambi through a forest while she's being shot. He's being shot. <laughs> so, I, you know, was, I was too young to know that this is what was right and wrong. But they would always write a letter back with their letterhead. And it was so really encouraging and wonderful. And I take that thing to school, man. And it would make me really cool for a couple of days. But anyway, yeah, so um, I ended up playing a singing mortician outside of the Haunted Mansion in, in, at Disneyland for two summers <laughs> to uh, entertain the guests while they were stuck in line. The problem was is that no one you told said, Wait, wait, wait. You said stuck in line. Don't you mean had the opportunity to enjoy your performance while waiting to get on an attraction that may or may not live up to the pre-show? That's exactly what I meant. And thank you for articulating it far better than I could. It proves the value of college. So, <laughs> so the first day I go out there, um, I'm dressed in this top hat and tails and it's this fabulous mortician's outfit and gloves and spats and I feel so cool. And I'm walking out to set 
and there's this little girl in a stroller and I like wave at her and uh, father asks if I would take a picture with her and I march right over there all proud to be a Disney cast member. And the guy goes, you know who that is, honey? You know Jiminy Cricket. And I didn't have the heart. So I literally went, well, sir, gotta go. And so then I go to my haunted mansion spot and nobody told operations that they were bringing in a wacky singing mortician. And so it took less than 90 seconds for security to come and haul my ass off stage and say, who are you <laughs> and what are you doing? So that was my entree into Disneyland. And then we were coming to Walt Disney World to work and I thought, oh gosh, and there were all these auditions. And I was number 100 in, I think there were 500 and some people that went to the audition in Orlando. And I thought, oh gosh, I want any, I want any performing job there is. I just want to, don't want to do that improv on the street anymore. And of course, I got cast in Streetmosphere with a lot of actors, really great actors from all over the country where half and the other half came from Renaissance fairs who came with an entirely different consciousness um, uh, concept and, and, and hair length than any of us did. And, and it was a real, again, meeting people that, you know, we're not, um, you know, what, what do I say? We're not Disneyfied yet. And so it was, uh, and you were, you were right there. In fact, I write about you and not by name, but I talk about in the book of you sort of being eye-rolly when you met me because of how, how pixie dust was blowing out of my nose. And you, were, you found that quite suspect. Well, I, when I started working for Disney, I did not stop to think that people would be there because it was Disney. I thought, I, I, had, I grew up what? in Wisconsin and I hadn't encountered that kind of Disney access that led to passion of that type. You had never met another adolescent Disney gay in your entire, really? Not that we talked about. That might have been the case, but it wasn't discussed. Um, the Disney or the gay? Up, I kind of grew up in the in-between years where the films like Robin Hood were coming out. There weren't a lot of merchandise you know, tie-ins. You were the toughest generation to train. When I became a trainer, a traditional teacher, I will tell you that you, the kids that grew up with the secondary Disney movies, like in the weird 70s, you did not come, I must tell you, you were the hardest nuts to crack. But I did get cracked. I, I learned a lot and changed my life forever. Mm -hmm. uh, how was your experience working for Disney? How would you describe it in hindsight? It was so episodic. You know, I am glad that I had every, I, I work at Disney at the best of times. I worked at it when it felt like you were just sort of you know, working at a factory and I've worked at it during some low times and I, I appreciate having had all those experiences, but having been there, you know, coming from the last part of the baby boom, for much of my experience, we get at the tail end of things. You know, we, we are just past the peak from everything from our education system, all kinds of things. So it was great to be part of something that hadn't peaked yet. And those Eisner years, those 90s, that was a great decade to be in your 30s. And it was a great decade to be an entertainer at Walt Disney World. It was a good decade to be in your 20s, too. 
But when you look, <laughs> when you uh, look back on that, what what was one of the chief rewards? What was one of the things you took away to turn into something else? Well, the reward was that it was true that if you if you there is great power in in serving people and enchanting people and 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 bringing the magic to people, and that if you were present. You know, again, my Disney experience was episodic and the company was growing so fast that if you had any kind of talent or skill, you know, it was like, oh, come over here and do this. <laughs> so I had, I would never have had an opportunity, I don't think, to, for example, uh, produce uh, training videos. Uh, the experience I had, I would have never had the exposure to learning of the ways of HR had I not had the Disney university experience. The Disney Institute experience gave me an entree into the business world that I never would have had. I, when I found myself in the boardrooms of Bank of America discussing my plans for their multi-million dollar training overhaul, you know, I was well, I had, I had barely attended high school. I had barely shown up for high school and, you know, I was doing commercials and I was a punk and I got there solely because of applying myself at Disney and, and, and believing, you know, I, I believed I, um, not blindly. I mean, I knew, you know, I, I knew that there were rough edges around all three of the circles of Mickey's head, but, um, you know, my friend Dennis Snow, said it perfectly. And Dennis Snow, somebody I admire, he's a fellow speaker, somebody I met at the Disney University. And he said, you know, I am so grateful. I'm so grateful that I worked at Disney. And I am so grateful that I'm not working there now. So one thing that you can't take forward with you when you leave are the guests. Right. right, the the guest encounters the way what you do affects them, the way their appreciation affects you. What's a guest story that you hold particularly dear? Oh gosh, I have. Wow, that's that's a uh, you know, and so many of the stories I tell when you ask me that, you know, I usually tell stories about times when I was a terrible cast member because I think that's a better way to teach. So when you're asking that, I'm thinking like, okay, what were warm, warm, uh, great, fuzzy moments? And I, uh, you know, I, ha I will have to use an example of, of stepping out of character once during my first Christmas at Disney was weird. And because I just, I had no idea that they were so bent on having white snowy Christmases in, in Florida. And there I am in this sort of weirdy elf outfit for this Christmas pageant in front of a tree and being Crosby's going oh, you know on this loop and it just was so surreal to me and I'm sweating in these tight it's just so weird and um and I for some reason I noticed this lady with her two sons uh, I made a lot of presumptions but I was right they were her two sons and they were all both about the age of 19 or 20 you know the age where kids would be with their girlfriends, maybe not hanging around their mom. And yet they had so much affection for this woman, their mom. And they were roughhousing with her and, and comfortable with a way that I didn't, I didn't grow up in a, in a, in a family that was uh, uh, obviously affectionate in public. And so I noticed this. And I, so I looked at this woman and the Christmas music is playing. And I said to her, only in my quasi-elfish voice, I said, um, you must be a great mom. 
because you know look at your sons and how much they love you and and a lot of guys are age they'd be too cool for this but they they clearly think you're a wonderful woman and what a great mom you must have been so she starts to cry and I felt like such an idiot in pointy ears. I made this woman cry. And then I find out she doesn't speak that much English. So I don't know which, and I just got out of there. And it upset me very much. And the next day I'm there and she kind of, I see her coming running at me. And she's going, una photo, una photo. And I'm like, oh no, 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 no. I don't know if she, I want to have my picture taken with her. She's going to cry again. And she does. And she hugs me and goes, Feliz Navidad. And she, again, very little English. And she hugs me and it's so weird. Just saying Merry Christmas. Feliz Navidad means Merry Christmas. Yeah, that part I got, Greg. That, that part I, I, I got. I'd heard the record. Um, but anyway, th thank you for breaking the rhythm of my beautifully fashioned story. But... <laughs> You know what? It's really too bad. I'm just going to go off that this is, we're on Zoom and that people cannot see what a fabulously New York apartment that you have. And that you have, literally, you have this sort of skyline with the hat that Liza Minnelli wore when she sang City Lights on the Tonys. But that's a whole other thing. So anyway, so um, I touched this woman. The next day she comes to have her picture taken to me. She comes and meets me several other times over the next three years, always hugs me, insists that I call her Mama Sita and cries. And it's weird. And then I get this letter from the desk of Michael Eisner. And she sent him this letter in not very good English. And he sends it to me so I can see it. And she writes about her first trip to Walt Disney World and that her father had just died and that she had prepaid for the trip and didn't want to go, but those boys had talked her into going. And she was having a really bad time. And then she said, and then this magical little elf, no, this magical angel came to remind me of everything I had to be grateful for. And I know that is so corny but it meant so much to me and it reminded me that you have no idea where anybody has just come from you have no idea where they're going you have the series of nows that identify who you are willing to be at any given moment and, and everything you know all the metaphysical things that i've learned and taught like a course in miracles and science of mind and this disney thing sort of come and play this fantastic trifecta and i thought I need to do this professionally. And that's how I got into training. And, uh, you know, and that's how I got into sharing my Disney story and trying to create, um, you know, magical workplaces. And everywhere I go, people want to tell me their Disney story, how they, you know, what, what happened to them at the parks. And so uh, it's, it is universal. Well, it's not universal. It's Walt Disney World. But we will be back with more stories about working for Disney and life after Disney. And Universal, maybe. Yes, in just a couple of minutes on Travels with Triggs. And we are back on Travels with Triggs, talking with my good friend Louis Gravance about Disney and life after Disney. So, so Louis, you're no longer working for the company, but the company is affecting your work. Tell us about life now. Well, yeah, because I taught business programs at the Disney Institute uh, and other companies uh, interfaced with us there, they were in, in the, uh, around the turn of the century, they, uh, we started to get headhunted a lot. And I was encouraged to leave Disney and go out on my own, which I did. And I was really lucky to have some good fortune right away uh, by 
sort of going to the companies that uh, I had seemed to engage with there. And so because of working with Bank of America and because of writing a training program for them, it, it opened up a whole world for keynote speaking for me. Um, and so that's what I do now. I keynote to speak, to, uh, I give keynote talks and seminars about delivering world-class customer service and uh, how service is a superpower and about lessons learned in a magic kingdom. And, um, and it's been great. It's been great. But you even kind of bring Disney flair to that in that you apply entertainment terms to your work. I believe you call them speaking concerts. Yeah, I know. And that's pretentious. But, you know, let me tell you the way a professional speaker works in that. You know, a lot of people, when they call and they want to talk, a lot of people think that you write a whole new program. And I always say that being a keynote speaker is like being a wedding band in that you know about 60 songs that you know really well. But you're only going to be able to do about 15. So you figure out the group and you figure out which 15 songs you're going to place and where you're going. Now, my first number and my closing number are always the same, just like Judy Garland. They're, oh, my, I, my open and my close are, uh, are the same. I've, I've read online that you are considered the Judy Garland of keynotes. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully I'm a lot less trouble. In fact, I'm going to be very low maintenance. But so I do, and, you know, I, I throw... I'm going to tell you something. To this day, I I throw up before a great many of these, and I get all worked up and upset. And I I think I'm going to walk out there. And I'm going to talk about myself a lot, and I can hear my father's voice going, because he said this to me one time. What in God's name could you talk about that people would pay you that kind of money for? And I hear that. You know, sometimes that sometimes that plays in my head. So I throw up and, um, but, so I, I'm one of those people that you, you kind of have to put, in fact, I don't meet the client before if I can help it because it, it worries them because I'm very soft-spoken and quiet and nervous. And then I, once I get pushed out there and take a breath. And so, yes, it's like a concert. And then I just go, you know, from one, cause it's, there are, there are, each story is like a number that takes me from one point to the next. So yes, I think of them as speaking concerts. They're 60 minute nonstop. I don't hold notes and I, I usually don't use slides and I just sort of uh, swirl like a whirling dervish and, um, you know. Well, so many people listening won't have the benefit of getting to see you in person. So what are a few of the motivators or career insights that you offer people against disparate lines of business, right? Because you're, you're not just talking to one kind of person. What are a few of the motivators you can pass along to the listeners? There's no business but show business. In fact, I almost called the book that. There's no business but show business. And one of the things I try to do with any company that I speak to is they might think that they have nothing in common with the opening curtain that takes place every time they open a Disney theme park every single day. But they are creating experiences by what their customers uh, see, hear, smell, and feel in exactly the same way. And so I try try to think, uh, I, so I try to introduce the idea of storytelling, that what they're doing is exactly what the Walt Disney Company is doing in that they are telling stories. 
and they are making magical memories out of things. In my, and this is where I bring Universal in, and I talk about sort of what they do at the, the, the Harry Potter wand shop, about how they magically, how many people it takes to turn $55 sticks into wands, and, and, and how all of us, no matter what we're selling, we have to ask ourselves, so what are we selling today, sticks or wands? Because it's, it's just like we used to say, Disney, what kind of day are we going to have? Magical memories of robots and rubber heads, because it is indeed both. So that's one of the things. And then the other thing is self-investment. Self-investment, that, that, that there is virtually nothing that you put out. It's, it's, a, it's like the law of gravity. The law of cause and effect works in business. And so, you know, as it says in A Course in Miracles, all that is given is ultimately given to ourselves. And so, yes, in a covert way, I try to bring in some of new thought and and new age uh, again very covertly in some of my some of my dialogue comes directly from a course in miracles thank you marianne williamson and um and occasionally one of my uh, participants out of you know hundreds will go will come up to me and go i know what you're doing okay okay i get it okay and and so i'm found out but yes that that, that there is a there is a absolutely a covert spiritual mission if i could sound so grandiose in my oh you have several times um <laughs> now within within all of this swirl you've also written a book yes. which is a new goal or mm -hmm. certainly nothing i was aware of prior to you starting to write it how has that felt what what insights did your book service is a superpower available on amazon for digital download or an actual book the important part is the subtitle though lessons learned in a magic kingdom that's what hooks it greg that's that's really that's that's the hooker but the, go ahead that is the hooker but how 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 did that offer new insights or opportunities for growth when you're a speaker and you have an agent, they really want you to write a book because even if nobody reads the book, you raise your price by $5,000. It doesn't matter. You just do it. So You're doing this for free. Thank you so much. You're, you're welcome. All that is given is given to myself eventually, Greg. So, um, uh, <laughs> so, um, so there was pressure to write the book, but as it turns out, it was really hard to write a book because I'm hyperactive and I have attention deficit. So... It was very difficult, which is why I started to write movie reviews at 500 words to teach myself what it was like to write 500 words at a time so that I could wrap my head around this. So it took me 15 years to get ready to write the book, and it only it took me about seven months once I was ready to heave it out. And I wanted to create a, a, a sort of a, you know, a funny biography and a workbook for people to make that transition from toiling and, and, and working to realize, to being self-invested and realizing that service is a superpower. I lost everything as an actor because I was just a drugged out punk. And I ended up having, after being, you know, becoming too hairy to be a child actor anymore, I ended up being a waiter and losing everything and learned the power of service. And I used to march around that restaurant acting like I worked at Disneyland. You know, like I was just so gracious and I just, I was really active. And then after several years, I get a call saying, do you want to come work in Disneyland? And that was my entree back into show business and into this whole thing. And it would not have happened if I had not been just going to corny. And it's too bad that the audience will not be able to see how high your eyes roll into your head. But had I not 
exceeded the customer, every patron, you know, to be invested as I was serving steak, you know, at a restaurant. I, 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 that's where I really learned the high that you can get from service and the, the power of it. And, it ex and I mean this too, excellence will always seek and find other excellence. So if you're serving anywhere, excellence will find you no matter where it is. So that's why I would say no matter what you're doing, be excellent at it. Bring well, joy to it. And today we found excellence with Louis Gravance, author of Service is a Superpower, Lessons Learned at the Magic Kingdom, available on Amazon. And uh, thank you for joining us on Travels with Triggs.